0: This morning, our reading um, is from Matthew chapter 8. And yep, you'll see it on the screen behind me. Matthew 8, starting in verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would and his servant was healed at that moment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat.
1: Good morning. Good morning. Hey, uh, my name is Austin McGall. I'm a pastor resident here with you guys. Excited to be here this morning. Um, if I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you after the service. Um, can I just uh, dig into one of the worst uh, kind of people? This is lighthearted. I'm digging. It. One of the worst kind of people are those who are continually reliving their high school athletics. Some of the worst kind of people, right? You know, like people who just relive it—the glory days. They just talk about them. You get started, they're going for an hour. Just that is just the worst, right? And so, ironically, you know, I wanted to kick off the time by doing just that. But I'm definitely not that kind of person. You'll see why. Uh, but my high school basketball team, right? We were pretty good. So my junior year. Um, sophomore year, um, I suited up varsity, which means I played JV, but I sat on the bench for varsity games and we won state. Sophomore year, we didn't lose the games. So we went like 30-0. and And then junior year, right, I'm supposed to be playing, but I didn't get good enough, so I still sat on the bench for varsity. Um, but we won state again my junior year, right? And so we went state my junior year. Senior year, I played and we lost state. Anyway, um, my junior year, we won state and then after the state championship game, there's like three or four parties going on around Omaha. We're feeling good, and I'm like, you know what? I'm, all my friends, we want to go to this party, and not talk my. Uncle, I have an uncle who comes to the games and stuff, and he's just real supportive. My uncle he has a Range Rover, and so I have the brilliant idea. I'm like, hey, like me and my friends, we just won state. I'm gonna ask my uncle if we can drive his Range Rover around Omaha with me and my boys, and we're gonna roll up to the party in the Range Rover. Right? That's my brilliant idea. And so I go to my uncle's house after the game or whatever, and I ask my uncle, I say, uh, like, you know, and everything in me is like, he's about to say no, obviously, right, it's this Range Rover. I'm like, uh, like, uh, we know he was thinking, hey, can, can I take the Range Rover out with me and some of the guys to the party? You know, we, we just won state. And he kind of looked at me, right? And I can only imagine what was going in his head. He's like, probably looking at me, I'm a junior in high school. He like, this little dude is asking me, this Range Rover I paid for, you know, the potential of him wrecking it is high. I don't know what he's going to be doing tonight. So it's like, no, I don't, you know, I'm scared for my I'm scared to give him this Range Rover off the, off the basis of how old he is. You know, he's excited about these parties. going to these parties. I definitely don't want to give it to him for that. I mean, like, the only reason I would give it to him is because I like him a little bit. You know, it's my nephew. You know, he's excited. I want him to have a good time. And so I can imagine all those things going on in his head. But he says, yes. He says, you can take the Range Rover. I said, what? You know, I had to play it cool because you know I, you, you act he might say no if he sees how excited I get. But anyway, took the Range Rover out. And um, and the next morning, well, this this is apart from uh my point, but the next morning he was changing the tire on the Range Rover, I was like, what happened? I don't remember a flat tire, you know, I felt so horrible about it, but um but the thing that the reason that my uncle allowed me to do that wasn't because we won state. If there would have been a, a a somebody on my team who would have went and asked my uncle. Randomly, hey, I like your Range Rover. Can I drive it tonight? We just won state. If that had been one of my teammates, they would have got a hard never. You know, you can never drive this Range Rover. It was off the basis of our relationship. My uncle cared more about me, the love that he had for me, and him wanting to see me have a good time and enjoy myself because we won state was the reason that he allowed me to have the keys to the Range Rover. It wasn't because we won state, it was because of the relationship that we had. And so, Um, but I wouldn't have got it if I wouldn't have asked for him. It it was a shot in the dark. I thought it was never going to happen. But when I asked him, he said, yes, you know, you never know, um, what, what, will happen unless you ask for it. And so tonight we're talking about prayer and, and the power of asking, why is it essential that we ask and talk to God? Why is prayer essential for revival? We've been talking about revival, renewal, seeking revival. And so, um, We're going to dig into prayer tonight and the importance of asking. So, we're going to look at three points. And those three points are just um, God's power and our faith in prayer. Next point we're going to look at is God's heart to answer our prayers that glorify Him. So, His heart to answer the prayers that glorify Him. Um, And then, lastly, how do we pray for revival with convinced belief? So, those are the three points we're going to be looking at tonight. Hopefully, we walk away compelled compelled to uh, pray life-changing prayers, to pray um, renewal-seeking prayers, and hopefully walk away compelled. But right now, I'll pray for us before we dig in. Dear Heavenly Father, God, just uh, excited to be here with you, God. Excited to, um, Father, just look at the scriptures, God, and see um, why prayer is so essential. God, I pray that we would um, be excited to pray. We'd be excited to ask you, uh, Father, for big things. And God, I pray that um, you would reveal your word to us today. Shame we pray. Amen. God's power in our faith and prayer. So I want to paint this picture. We're going to be spending time in Matthew 8. If y'all have your Bibles, y'all can open up to it because we're just kind of going to just be drawing from it. Matthew 8, 5 through 8 for this first point is what we're looking at. Um, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion said to him or came to him, Asking for help, and so the context of what's going on right now. This is a Roman centurion, so this guy's a big deal. Like he's a commander over a Roman army, a lot of soldiers. So at the time, the Jews in Israel and Rome's and Roman um, and Roman soldiers, or anybody in Rome in general, they kind of just didn't get along. Right? They weren't necessarily um, enemies but they didn't get along. So the culture at the time, it was kind of just tense. Like people, if there was a, Jew, if there was a Jewish group of people, if you had some Jews who even did business with, with Romans, they were looked at like, why are you doing business with the Romans? That's kind of the culture, kind of the climate that was going on at the time. And so this is a Roman officer, a dude who has authority. Um, and so it's crazy that he approaches Jesus. I say that to say it's crazy that he approaches Jesus, but not only does he approach Jesus, he says... Lord, um, And so this is a man who is in control and he kind of digs into it a little bit later on, but he's like, I understand what authority is, right? He starts talking. He's like, um, he said, I myself know what it is. I tell this one go and he goes, that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. He's like, pretty much he's acknowledging. I understand what it means to be in charge. And so it's crazy that a Roman officer over these soldiers is approaching this you know, this physically like a 30-year-old dude who's walking around with, with with a small following, a Jewish guy, and he's like, Lord, acknowledging, I understand what authority is. I know that you have authority. I know that you have all authority. And he says, Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and is suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I go and heal him? The centurion replied, and it's crazy that Jesus like, just replies that and and the the context, culturally, the Jews are standing here like, Jesus, what? you going to heal this wrong? What? You know, as he's shattering all paradigms for the cultural differences right now. But he says, Jesus says, shall I go and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. We can tell in how the centurion approaches Jesus that when he says, Lord, there's a different kind of weight there. Lord, It's like everybody says Lord. We kind of throw it around sometimes. Like, well, Jesus is Lord. Like it can be head knowledge, but we can look at even the context of what's going on culturally. And you look at how what he says to Jesus. I don't I don't deserve to have you even come under my roof. There is a different kind of weight to that word Lord that he's saying. And it's like, well, what should the weight be when we throw around the word Lord? Like we should have a view of this God, this Lord. And so we think about it and it's like, Lord, who is the Lord, the King of Kings who rules and has all authority over everything? The Lord, the creator of all things that are here today and then all things that are to come. Lord, the one who put the clouds and made them the earth's garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. We think about nighttime. The one who put the stars and has named the stars. The one who has entered the storehouses of the snow and seen the storehouses of hell. These are all some examples from uh, Job chapter 38 and 40, and you can go read about them. I mean, he's just pretty, God's just digging into who he is, asking Job, who am I and who are you? Lord, our view of God should be that view. Do I approach God? When I say, Lord, do I approach him in that way all the time, every day? Is that my everyday view of God or is God smaller than that? Anybody ever been deep sea fishing? Been out on the ocean fishing? Okay, you got a couple people. Ocean fishing. I've never been ocean fishing, right? I've never been deep sea fishing. But um, sometimes people will be out there, you know, on a boat and they get the strap. You know, you get strapped to a boat because it's just like you carrying, you might catch a shark, you know, and so it's like you need some help or whatever, reeling them in. But let's say we're out on the ocean and I just have a normal fishing pole in. And then and then my fishing pole, I'm just happy go lucky out here, you know, standing on this boat, and then my fishing pole snags a whale. What happens to me? I'm gone <laughs> with the quickness, you know? I'm, I am off this boat. If I'm either letting go of this fishing pole or I'm in the water getting drug around by this whale. If I was attached to the boat and I hooked the whale, he's probably taking the boat with him. Still not going to be strong enough. I think that um when we see things like that or exa- or when we look at a whale and the power of a whale compared to me or just our natural strength we're no comparison we're you we're we're hopeless it's like there's nothing that we can do i'm not going to wrestle with the whale for 6 or 7 hours and maybe get him into the boat there's no hope that's not happening And God knows that. And in Job 41.1, he kind of, that's actually the literal illustration that he used. He says, can you pull in the Leviathan? See, I've never seen a Leviathan, but I take it that's probably three times as big of a whale, you know, bigger than a whale. If y'all know what a Leviathan is, y'all don't ruin it for me. I'm just going to keep imagining it's four times bigger than an actual whale. Can you pull in the Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down his tongue with a rope? Verse 9 says, any hope of subduing him is false. If you think by any means you are going to reel in this whale, this leviathan, that's false. The mere sight of him is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse him. Who then is able to stand against me? I think a lot of times God points to creation. We can think about a whale and look at if I was to really catch a whale, how how weak, how hopeless should I be? There's no comparison. And I can look at that well and this majestic, how big, how mighty, how strong that well is, and blow that out of the water compared to God. That is how I should view God times a million. God is the creator of all things, and that's how we should view him every day. And that's the Lord that the centurion is approaching. He has a proper view of who Jesus is. And so if some people may think, if I think about God like that, then I just have a big radical view of God. Like, wow, God is that? And it's like, no, you don't. You just have a proper view. That is how we should look at God. He's the Lord of all things. I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. His heart posture is one of reverence. If we have a proper view of God, we will be that desperate for him. We realize that he holds everything in his palm. It's like if we have a proper view, then we will see our hopelessness. We'll see that we can't do anything and that he does everything. If we have that kind of view, it'll result in reverence and desperation in our hearts. And so I want to think about that. What is our view of God? Like, how do we view God? Entertain that thought in your own head. You ain't even got to say nothing to anybody. But how do you actually view God? Is he your, like, call and response of God, you know? Oh, I'm in trouble. Let me pray real quick, you know? Is he the creator of all things in your mind? Is Is he small, you know? Is a situation in your head too small for God to handle? Or is he almighty and in control of every single nook and cranny of your life? That's challenging for me to think about. I was thinking about it earlier this week and I was like, wow, like I treat God a lot of times like he is just this sometimes a call and response God, you know, or like I have a small view of God sometimes, genuinely. But when I think about the centurion and he has a proper view of God. Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed and is suffering terribly. I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. A famous uh, theologian, A.W. Tozer. He said, uh, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. I think it's important for us to realize and know who we are talking to when we're praying. God's power and our faith in prayers is the first point it's important to know who we, talk, who we are talking to because when we know who we're talking to, then our faith in him is strengthened. Just as if I was wading in the water and then I see a big whale come by, that fear, that reverence for this massive whale, just hoping that I can just be on his side. That's how I should feel when I'm thinking about God. I should feel that desperation. My faith, when I view God like that, is strengthened. Then I believe, I want to believe what he wants. I just want to head in his direction. I don't want to be against the will. I want to be with the will. I'm going where he's going, right? I don't want to be against God. I want to be with God. I want to go where he's going. I want to believe what he wants done. And I will my faith is strengthened. And then that kind of leads us to our second point. The second point is God has a heart to answer the prayers that glorify him. When I realize who he is, my heart then wants what he wants. And I then see that what he wants is best because he is in control. And I think we see that in the centurions of verse eight. We'll pick up at verse eight. Um, He says, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go and he goes and that one, come and he comes. I say to this servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have found, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I mean, that's wild for multiple reasons. One, the creator of the universe is amazed. But two, this is a Roman centurion like we talked about earlier. And Jesus is in the midst of some Jews. And he said, I haven't found anyone, a Jewish person, anyone in Israel with such great faith as this Roman centurion. Jesus was amazing. He said, I tell you the truth, that is, that is wild because I think Jesus is what he's expressing to us. He's showing us um, something about his own heart posture that we can learn from and glean from. I'm like, Jesus loves that kind of faith, that kind of belief. Um, just say the word. He said, hey, you don't even have to come to my house. Like, you are the Lord. Just If you just say the word, it'll be done. That... That faith is wild. And essentially, essentially, the centurion is only asking what Jesus always does. That's what's crazy about it. He's asking Jesus to do what Jesus does. Hey, can you heal this servant of mine back at the house? hey, the work that you already do, can you do that for my servant? Can you, do, can, you, can you help me out? I know that you are in the business of healing. You don't even have to be there. Just say the word. I was talking to a, a dad recently. I'm not a dad, so I had to talk to one. And I was talking to him um, not too long ago, and he told me this. He said, if one of my kids asked me for something... He said, if he asks me for something that I'm into, I'm 100% getting it for him. If, I'm in, if I play the violin and my kid asks me for a violin, I don't care if I got to put a down payment on it. I'm getting it for him. He wants to do it with me. right? If I, if, I, if I ride bikes and my kid wants to get a bike to ride with me, I'm getting it for him because he wants to do it with me. Hundred percent. If I'm drawing and he wants to draw, I'm getting all that stuff. I can keep going for days. But then the hesitation, but also what's expressed in the hesitation is like, well, if he wants a four-wheeler so he can ride around with his friends and they can go get rowdy and be crazy and, you know, that's kind of irresponsible. I'm nervous about that. That may not be his best. I'm I'm hesitant to just go ahead and just give him a four-wheeler that honestly, that'd take him away from family time. And I don't want him to be away from, you know, the family, he's already away from the family a lot. Not that that's the, the main thing. But when we think about that in terms of like how God operates, when we ask prayers that are glorifying to God and that say, God, I want to do this with you, the things I'm praying for, can, can you do this? God, can you do what you already do and allow me to be a part of it? God, I want to be a part of it. God can't wait to bless that. He cannot wait to bless the prayers that glorify him. And then there are things that I pray for that are for myself, for my own selfish ambitions, for my own desires. There are those things as well. You know, maybe I'm thinking American dream type. Maybe I'm thinking, um, you know, just just my own success. It's like, well, God is like if I hear you praying for those things and not that he doesn't answer those at all completely. I can't say that with, you know, 100 percent confidence. But he's like, are those things taking you away from me? Do those glorify me? It makes sense that God would hesitate to just bless us for a lot of that stuff rather than if we're praying for revival, renewal. God, would you do what you always done? The centurion is like, hey, you're in the business of healing people. Can you heal my servant? I'm desperate for you to heal my servant. Just say the word, Jesus. And Jesus says, just say the word and he will be healed. Um, Jesus later on goes on to heal him. And I'm like, when we look at that heart posture, that's, that's crazy for us to think about and to realize, because I think there's something special in praying for what God wants, because not only is that best for us, but we can have a confidence in it because we know that that is what God gets excited about. Jesus was do this. Jesus was amazed. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. It's kind of like a, safe to say, it's kind of like, like a love, like I'm praying prayers that glorify God, kind of like a love language. You know, it's kind of like, you know, I, I probably would think quality time is my love language. I don't know. I think so. You know, I spend quality time with people. You know, I grow toward people and I'm I'm more, I'm warmer toward people. I'm willing to hang, you know, I'm willing to serve. I'm willing to, I just, it's my love language. It's like it's in my wheelhouse. I'm like, I feel close and connected to you. You know, let me get some people who, who love giving gifts and stuff. And you know, that's the way that they connect. And I'm like, that's cool. You know, um, you know, can tolerate it. I, I don't mind gifts, you know, it's like, you know. It's not the way I feel connected, but but that's cool. I can connect with you through that. You know, I can learn how to, you know, physical touch people. It's like okay, you know, sorry. No, I'm just kidding. I like I like physical touch. But the point is, the way that I feel most connected is through is through um, quality time. And I'm like, I think that when we pray prayers that are glorifying to God, it's kind of like his love language. He's like, wow, I am amazed. I can't believe this faith. Look at this. Almost like he stands up out of his seat, you know, like, wow, this is like we're in his wheelhouse now. God is like, yes, we are here. Like, you know, whatever your love language is, how you feel. I'm like, I feel like that is just how Jesus is. Like that is his love language. Jesus was amazed It struck a different chord with him. All that to say, if we're praying for things that are in line with 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 what Jesus wants, with healing, with transformation, we're praying for a revival. God, would you move in the hearts of these people? Um, then we should just have an unwavering confidence in those prayers and know that we are praying things that that God wants for us, and we can be a part of, and God will bless that. He'll bless that. But we need to be careful about praying for things that don't necessarily glorify Him. It may keep us. Um, may keep us from the things that really do glorify him. So, if we're continually just praying for the things that we want to see happen, selfish ambitions, or whatever the case, we may need to redirect our prayer life. What is glorifying to God? <clears throat> so, we see the centurion asking Jesus to do what he already does, but then also, um, we see that he was convinced that Jesus would do it, and so that's kind of um, where we we head to the third point, which is just how do we pray for renewal and revival with a convinced belief because he was convinced all you got to do is say the word jesus and he 'll be and he 'll be good like you know I understand how this authority thing works. He was convinced, and how do we get there? one, I think we get there from a proper view of God, understanding everything is in his palm. He is the Lord of all things he 's in charge, and then Once we realize that, then we have a faith that is like, hey, I believe since you are in charge, you do know what is best. So what you communicate in your word about what's best, that's what I want to be praying for. That's what I want to be about. And then not only is that what I want to be about, but I want to be unwavering in that right there. I want to sit right there and have a convinced belief. Because how does Jesus respond? Verse thirteen: Jesus said to the centurion, "Go, let it be done, let it be done just as you believed it would. Let it be done just as you believed it would." And the servant was healed at that moment. I think about other places in Scripture where is Mark 11, 24. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have already received it, and it'll be yours. James one: He who asks must believe and not doubt, because anyone who doubts It's like a a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. It's crazy that God tells us to be so confident in the prayers that glorify him that we shouldn't have an ounce of doubt, that we should almost just, as as we're praying, we should just believe that it is going to happen. It's crazy that that's borderline. it's, It's a command. I mean, it's crazy. That is insane to really think about. I can be that confident. Um, I wanted to look at a couple times where God shows up in prayer too, just kind of in general how God moves in prayer. When the early church was getting started, Peter kind of early on in Acts, Acts 12, Peter getting put in prison by King Agrippa. Um, Acts 12:5 it says, "So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying for God, uh, praying to God for him." And then by verse seven, we see that the angel was breaking him out of jail. Church was earnestly praying for God's will to be done for Peter. Look at Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had a confused, a confusing dream. So then he was like, hey, like um, he ordered all his counselors and was just like, hey, if anybody, if can somebody tell me what this dream is? If nobody can interpret for me this dream, I'm killing all y'all. Like, bro, that is horrible leadership. You know, that is tough. I do not want to be in his house as a counselor at that time. A dream. Oh, that is rough. So then David, chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, he goes back to his boys. Then David returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the Lord of heaven concerning the mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. They prayed earnestly, plead for mercy. They were pleading with God so that Um, they wouldn't die. And God revealed it. God revealed it to Daniel. It goes on, and then Daniel gets put um, in um, in a favorable, more of a favorable position kind of even in general because he had favor from the Lord. Prayer is just powerful. Prayer always comes before a huge movement or God's hand moving in a wild way. Prayer kind of always comes first. One other story that's not as apart from the Bible. It was in uh, 1857, um, September 1857. So there was a, a Great Depression kind of going on this year in, the, in the, um, Wall Street. And uh, things were falling apart. And um, there was a lot of moving parts going on at the time. I'm not going to dig into all of them for the sake of, of time. But there's a lot of things going on. And so then you have this guy who starts these lunch hour prayer meetings. He goes down to this church and um, for just for an hour a day, goes down there and just prays. Um, actually, I don't know if it was every day or once a week. It was one of them. Every day might as well for emphasis, right? Could be once a week. I was reading it last night. Didn't write it down. Anyway. Starts off by himself. First couple months, 50, it grew. So the first two months, well, the first few weeks, it was just kind of just two people, him and then somebody else would come occasionally, just him. After a couple months, 50 to 60 people were coming in here, praying. People saw the need. They're praying. They're like, all of this is kind of just falling through the cracks. It's just tough out here, right? They're in New York, Wall Street, some businessmen, probably successful, but they feel their brokenness. Within six months in different businesses throughout New York City, so this ended up spreading not only from their business, people heard about what was going on there, and so this ended up spreading throughout New York. Within six months, uh, out of 800,000 people that were in uh, in New York at the time, or in that area at the time, 10,000 businessmen were praying over their lunch break in different businesses over a span of six months. That happened in September of 1857. By January in 1858, newspapers were sending out with um, headlines, the progress of the revival. They're talking about it. What is happening? So many people were coming to Christ at the time. Businessmen are like, wow, what is happening? I need this. There, People were seeing their desperate need. They're coming to these prayer meetings broken, and then they're like praying, and then they're like, wow, I need more of that. And then they're coming to Christ and coming to know who God is. prayer is kind of always the beginning of something huge that God does true prayers that are acknowledging who God is and praying for his will to be done. These aren't just empty prayers that kind of don't really matter. These are prayers that glorify him. When I pray as if something has already happened, not only does God tell me to, but also something kind of happens in my own heart when I'm praying like that. When I'm praying with this convinced belief, something kind of starts happening to me. I think God works on my heart as much as I'm praying for other people. It's like, I want to see your revival happen more than anything. I'm praying in the mornings. Let's say I wake up 6 AM and I'm, let's say I wake up and I'm praying for an hour every single day. Now, when I'm at work, and I sit down on my lunch break, and somebody comes and sits down with me. The only thing that's really on my mind, the only thing I'm saturated with, is the fact that I've been praying for a revival in Colombia. And now I'm looking at this dude, and I'm like, "Wow, God could use you in amazing ways to bring a revival in Colombia." Then I ask him how his weekend was, and he tells me. And then I ask him if faith ever been a part of his life. You know, it doesn't it doesn't actually have to go like that. But I'm I'm thinking about. The revival happening through this person. My life. God then does something when I'm praying like that. God does something to me, and that affects my day in and day out life. Convinced belief. God uses that in huge ways. I've then look at people different. I've then look at my life different. I then operate just different. If I am praying for those things as if they're already happening, as if God is already gonna do it, then I now can be a part. And now I'm feel like I'm equipped and I can just have a conversation because I'm on fire for God. God does something internally when we really do pray like that. I wanna go back and look at the centurion for a second. He was asking God to heal a paralyzed man. Let's pause real quick. He was, he walked up on Jesus, this Roman centurion. Roman officer, authority over many people, walked up on 30-year-old, had nothing appealing about him, what the scriptures say about Jesus. He walked up on him and said, Lord, all you have to do is say the word and my servant will be healed back at the house. He's paralyzed right now and going through a lot of suffering. He was asking Jesus to heal a paralyzed man without even being next to him. We're asking for something far less mind-blowing. That is mind-blowing faith. We're asking for God to do what he always does and change the hearts of people. We're asking for a revival. We're asking for God to move and God to reveal himself to a large group of people so that so many people would start following him at one time, a revival. We're asking for that. We're not asking... We're a paralyzed dude to be healed. And we can't ask for that. But my point is the faith that's there and the faith that we should have. That should be the faith that we should have. Our faith should be challenged when thinking about that. We're asking God to do what he always does. And so. One, if I view God how I view God, then it'll be easy for me to have an unwavering faith. And when I view God how I should view God, it'll be easy for me to want to pray the prayers that glorify him, the prayers that will bring about revival. A proper view of God honestly will bring about proper prayers. (laughs) Like praying with prayers that glorify him are proper prayers. Like They should be the norm, honestly. And when we think about the things that we're trusting God for, um, this is something that is, should be easy, a revival or seeing people come to know him. We should expect that to be done. That should be easy. Because if we think about all the things that we trust God for, let's, salvation in general. If I step back and think about what I'm trusting God for in terms of heaven, we step back and look at it. God, I'm saying, I believe that God, you sent your son to die on the cross for my sin, Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And then after that was raised, resurrected three days later, resurrected and in him being resurrected, the statement of I have I have destroyed. I am over life and death itself. I'm resurrected from the grave. That means I am in charge of death. I'm in charge of life. I am. I am here. I have all authority in that being true. You resurrected and ascended into heaven. And and me saying, or and then me reading, if I follow you, oh, I get heaven. So I also get to go there, even though I'm sinful. If we look at what we're trusting in salvation in heaven, that is kind of mind-blowing in and of itself. That is faith in and of itself. If we can trust God for heaven, which we can 100%. We absolutely can. Jesus died and rose from the grave three days later and said, it's done. We absolutely can trust him that we, by following him, we can go to heaven. We are going to heaven. We absolutely can trust him in that. If we can trust him in that, then he, we can trust him in the prayers for a revival. We can trust him in the prayers for people coming to know him. We can trust him in the prayers that are, are, are renewal seeking and, and, and souls of people coming to know who he is because those are prayers that glorify him. If we trust him for that, then we can trust him. For this Romans eight thirty two It just says, but he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? When we put it in a perspective and really think about all the things that God has done through Jesus at the cross and what we're believing in, when we have a proper perspective of who God is it will make sense, only makes sense that we pray prayers that glorify him and that we pray those prayers convinced that God will do it and that he'll move. So I want to encourage us to keep approaching the throne in reverence, keep approaching God in submission, keep approaching in faith. And keep praying for a revival that we we look at the revival and be like, the only explanation for that is, wow, God really did that. God really changed the hearts of all these people. A movement so massive, we're praying for a movement so massive that the only explanation is not about anybody's preaching, anybody's teaching, anybody's life. It's only about the fact that God just chose to just do something wild in that time. I pray for us.